Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Um, guys, I watched Love Actually recently. And um, I don't like necessarily recommend that, that movie um, on a number of fronts. It's artistic creativity or it's moral outlook. But it is fascinating. It's a fascinating book, but I'm not or movie. I'm not going to go into a long diatribe about love, actually, except for, does anyone have a particular um, line, melodic line that comes to mind, those of you who have seen Love Actually? You're already humming it. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. No, anybody? This is how I have been, um, this, is, this is accurately uh, describes my love affair with music. Um, not that song, <laughs> but that line. <laughs> I like always think of it when I think about, which is often like my love of music. Um, I don't know how to passively listen to music. Um, when I was a, a, a kid, very quickly my room turned into a radio station. Um, and so I would make playlists uh, with the CDs that I had, and, and I would act as if there were thousands of listeners on the other side, and I would, like, read, like, the liner notes, thinking people were interested, and who played bass on track four of, I don't know, whatever I was listening to, a Guster album. Like, it was, like, it was Guster deep cut playing the Columbus Theater April 4th, already sold out. Who got their tickets? Nobody, just me. Moving on. The, 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 like, unbelievable desire to like have other people connect with music. I'd never understood passively listening to music. I, um, as far as I know of, was never walked in on. My mom and dad can attest to this because I would lock my door and I would put on full-blown concerts. Not just like one like moment of singing in the shower and like losing my mind, like full on. I'd give speeches in between songs like, this one goes out to, and I would, like, be the super band in my head so I could jump between artists. It wasn't like I was just Rage Against the Machine today, and then, like, I don't know, just Dave Matthews band or something. It was like, I'm everybody. Anybody? Anybody. Nick, I'm looking up at you. Anybody? No? Nothing. A few. There's a few. Still, all right, thank you. Now, if I ask you a question... Could I play you a song if you're in my presence and we're hanging out? I have a bunch of expectations because of my love for music. Do you know what those expectations are? If I were to like sit down with you, Mike, and just be like, hey, Mike, can I play you this song? Can anyone guess what my expectations might be? No talking. Really simple. I feel like it sounds obvious, but there are clearly some unwritten rules that the listener need only pay attention for a few moments before then returning to a normal conversation. Has anyone had this experience? Hey, let me play you a song. They're like, yeah, cool. You put it on. Six seconds later, they're like, yes, yeah, so what are you doing this weekend? I'm playing you a song. <laughs> How many of you are the other person? This was really difficult, and it literally created a fight one time where I come into the driveway having been playing Corey a song, and now we're home. 
And apparently, Corey, my wife, sitting in the driveway, listening to a song for a few more minutes was like infuriating to her. Just she was so like, okay. <laughs> like the tapping on the like steering wheel just wanted out. And I'm like, there's nothing I want more than to just sit and listen to music. So I have some friends over who are here today, just the other day, and we're talking and we're hanging out. And then slowly me and the husband in this, this married couple who kids, and suddenly we find our way over by the record player and the two of us are just like way too loud. It's like kind of drowning out the kids running around and my wife and his wife talking and we are just listening to song after song. But I found somebody who knew what I thought were the explicit rules of when I play you a song, the only question you should ever ask is, can I look at the lyrics? And you just shut up and you listen intently. Growing up for me, it felt like every album that I had put on had the capacity to become my favorite. When I started writing songs, they were horrible, but I needed them to mean something. You remember, Mom, where are you? There was this song about, um, I was really upset that my parents were like getting into some squabble about should we pave the driveway? And I was on a particular kick of like, you know, super that classic hypocrisy in high school where you're like, we shouldn't spend money on anything. Materialism is like the worst. And I'm like buying new band t-shirts and more like posters. And but I was like, how could we do that? We're getting into fights over whether we have enough money for the drive. And it became like as if I was like raging against apartheid. And I was writing these songs, but they had to mean something. <laughs> it was never background music. And then I discovered jazz at a club in New York City. I'd heard jazz plenty of times, and I sat there, and I closed my eyes, and I started listening to the interplay of the different musicians. And I just, this is going to make no sense to most of you, but I just lost myself. Anyone ever had that moment? Just, you like, all of a sudden, like, I'm, I don't even know where I am. I'm, like, floating above. And new, new, one of my first Newport folk festivals, no, I didn't grow up like a folk guy. Oh, my gosh, hearing James Taylor play, something snapped to me. I've heard James Taylor growing up my whole life. Like, this isn't, like, rebel music. And then that sweet man started singing. And I looked over at, like, like all the, like, wannabe hippie kids doing this dance. And I'm like, I'm in. Give me the stuff. Like, take me back to the 60s. Oh, it just welled up in me. And then, it's funny enough, my, my good buddy's here. Uh, today. He, he was in a hardcore band. And I'll never forget the first time I heard him play. He was the singer and he just began to scream. Anybody ever been in a hardcore band? There's a few artists actually here who are in hardcore bands, like punk rock bands, where it was like, it didn't lead with melody, it lead, led with screaming. And he, there's this line in one of their songs that comes to the end of the tune, and just, he belts out, I still believe that faith can move the mountains. And I'm like, except it was not just him screaming on a microphone, it was like a club full of like hundreds of sweaty kids just like pumping their fist in the air. I think you got smoked like in the eye, didn't you one time? Like your glasses got like, like, like oh my goodness. I went, oh that. It's like, it was jazz and it was folk fest and it was hardcore. It's like immersive, immersive. Now my parents casually listened to music. My dad's a great singer, plays the trumpet. Uh, they had me take classical piano lessons. But my passion for music really, it wasn't, 
I, I recognize it wasn't something um, that was like taught, the, the, the passion part. It, it really is something that you catch, right? Because some things are taught and then some things are just caught. I got swept up in a world of poets and musicians and it's never really waned. If you ever see me driving alone in the car, just look for two extra seconds and you'll know <laughs> it hasn't waned. <laughs> When I caught the heart of music, it changed everything. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to write music. It was just the sole desire of my heart. I've said this many times. The thing I love most about being in church, honestly, is just getting up and leading worship. It just, there's something about it. That's what this teaching series that we're about to step into for the next four and a half months. This is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Not music. But in a way, music. Catching the heart of something. The adventure into the unending magnitude and love of God. And then making sense of how that might affect how we live our life. We're simply calling this collection of talks the one we long for. The one we long for, the God we long for, which is a bold claim. The idea of some sort of universal longing that we all feel. And so I want to begin with this really simple, well-traveled idea that there is an ache. Growing up, I'd hear people scoff at the idea of like a deep ache, or uh, growing up for me, it was like the God-shaped hole. Anyone remember that one? Yeah. There was, like, I mean, growing up in New England, it just, I'd hear folks scoff at this idea in favor of a God-free, church-free life. And this is wildly simplistic, what I'm about to say, I understand that. But fast forward a few decades, and I would argue that, I wouldn't just argue, it seems like everyone these days are arguing, if anything has become clear, is that, in, in the least the secularized West, is that the mirage of a God-free, happy life has been exposed. Just like what's been exposed has been the godless church who wasn't faithful to the scriptures. In its place, we have the rise and fall of Trump, worldwide chaos and loss, of 2020, global uprising over systemic racism, an opioid crisis, mental health epidemic, spiking rates of all of the sweet harbingers of doom, crime, murder, suicide, sexual assault, addiction. These things are worse than they have ever been. Worse than they have ever been. And in the ashes of COVID's just, you know, worldwide whatever, like this disorientation that we've all felt, like where have most people turned? Well, to identity politics, to conspiracy theories, to militant secularisms on the left and the right, to systems of thought, new age religion that detaches love. It's only built on justice and not mercy. Dogmas that divide us into us versus them, stoke anger, decimate peace, decimate fear. But behind all the rage... There are so many people writing about this, and I'm sensing it in our own community. It's like the ache is still there. In fact, I think it's sort of intensified, which might be one reason why we're seeing these outpourings of the Spirit all over the country, specifically in college campuses, specifically led in lo-fi ways by Gen Z. The ache is still there, gnawing at the human heart. It was author uh, Julian Barnes, is quoted in the New York Times, but he wrote in a book about living and dying as an atheist. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think this is true, not just, by the way, of those of us who are filled with some intellectual doubt this morning, 
But I think it's true of those whose life with Jesus is sort of on autopilot. I say this phrase a lot, but I think it's appropriate. It's sort of Jesus' lifestyle tack on. Any of you who came from the South, I think this is a great temptation. It can happen anywhere in any Christian bubble, but especially there, right? It's like it becomes this is just sort of what you do and you tack it on to your, like, ways of thinking about the world, but it doesn't actually seem to shape. Like, you're as gossipy as anybody else. Like, you're as angry as anybody else. Like, you, you, you have this sort of vitriol and consumerism and materialism. I'm not just picking on the South. This can happen again anywhere. But you notice it in hyper-focused Christian subculture bubbles. Somehow forgiveness and reconciliation, that's, I'm going to ignore those passages or whatever it may be. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. The deepest desire of the heart is the desire for God, not just to know about him, as the cliche goes, but to know him, to experience emotionally what is true of us theologically, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that we're in Christ, which is this way of saying we can, like, commune with him, which is a way of saying, like Jesus says, we can make our home with God, which is what the word abide means. And when the world becomes louder and more vitriolic, that ache for that communion with God and connection with God. And to use like an old tired phrase that I've said recently, I want to resurrect and reclaim a relationship with God. It only increases. So to see God as a good idea or to see God as a meal ticket to some eternal banquet, gosh, is to sell everything that God promises, like that whole experience so short. To see God as the very essence and origin of pleasure. We're told it's God's great pleasure that he made us. Goodness, excitement, adventure, joy, wonder. These things that we long for, not just because we find these things in what God gives us, but because we find those things in God himself. What if we could believe the scriptures that in him is rest? Rest, like true rest, and freedom, and hydration, and the thirst that we have, a stilling to the ache. And so I want to invite us over these next four months to see that we were created to feel God in our bones. This is not just for like the poets or the crazy musician kid who somehow accidentally became a pastor. It's not. This isn't a demeanor thing. That's cool, Andrew. You're pretty, like, you know, emotional, whatever. It has nothing to do with your demeanor. It has nothing to do whether you're introverted or extroverted. This isn't about conjuring even some sort of response. It's a life lived in deep recognition that we can be one with God, that we can genuinely believe that God is good and worthy of our attention that we can say with our minds that he is always with us and never ceases to love, and yet the reality of it we know can feel somehow so far away. And that we can be people who acknowledge that sometimes we get into these ruts with God where prayer feels hard and feels like just dry work. Maybe that it's a reality and a joy for others and not us. That we can come to grips that, guys, we can go to church for decades and serve the poor and pastor and preach and yet find ourselves at the end of it all depleted, 
unsure and not feeling as if we know God, not experiencing that rest and joy that he brings, if the longing is for the soul's deep thirst to be satisfied, then theology and cultural analysis, even a great church community, is not going to be enough. We need God himself. We need to rekindle our desire to know him and rediscover, hear this, how to know him. There's a French aviator and writer who's credited with saying this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you hate quotes like that, you're in for a rough four months. <laughs> long for the immensity of the sea. Anyone else wish they could just sort of conjure a more zealous life right now? Anyone else feeling the weight of exhaustion and apathy and despondency towards others, towards neighbors, towards God, towards their own, like, self? Anyone feel like their attention has almost been hijacked and they don't know how to break out of the glaze or the malaise? There is this idea, this word in the Christian tradition, in the way of Jesus, the path of Jesus, that helps us see the endless immensity of the sea. And it's the simple idea of beholding. Will you say beholding? Um, I think it's Straham or Straham Coleman. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Strom? Strom. Strom. <laughs> Defines beholding like this. Beholding is the practice of gazing into God, gazing into us, gazing back into him. <laughs> That's clear. Beholding is the practice of gazing into God, gazing into us, gazing back into him. Our Christian ancestors used the language of placing our minds in our hearts and learning to pray from there. Man, my hope is that over the next four months, some of you all are going to access your heart. And some of you all have got a lot of heart, but you've decided to punt all things Orthodox Christian tradition are going to come home and realize the beauty and majesty of the way of Jesus. David says that this is as his soul's singular ambition. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty, that's that word behold, of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Placing our minds in our hearts and praying from there. David talks about beholding as a life founded on the truth that no other offer on earth or in heaven is greater than that of simply staring into the eyes of God. Placing great value on God himself. Philippians 3, one of my all-time favorite passages. This is the stuff of punk rock. I consider everything a loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. This is written by Paul. 
And the only thing that happened to Paul is he just had a revelation of the worth of God. A functional terrorist of God's people. A broken, jacked up religious figure in every sense of the word. And he gets a revelation of the beauty of Jesus. Knowing Christ. He says, I just want to know him. Jesus says, now this is eternal life. All right, I'm listening. I'd like eternal life. This is eternal life. Anyone listening? Jesus then says, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, this is Paul again, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The church of Ephesus is crushing it, and Paul is really excited about them. Guys, I keep thinking about you, and I'm stoked on what God's doing. Stoked. You are like leaning into love and leaning into the power of God. I keep asking, he's like, there's more. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that what? You might know him better. There's just an ache to know more of him, to gaze upon him. And then we see this behold word show up. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Beholding is allowing the eyes of your heart to be enlightened and focused and fixed on the beauty and majesty of Jesus. In short, it's just our upward direction. Those of you who've been around a while, how we think about discipleship, it's to be with him. That journey of beholding the God of the universe just begins with, I want to know what it is to be with you. To be with you which connects us to life in him. Beholding becomes a place of adventure and wonder, something you can't live without because it's so deeply satisfying. It's about knowledge that goes beyond knowledge. And it's getting to know him on his terms. I've shared this before, but I read a statistic that uh, it takes about five to 10 years to realize that you didn't marry the person that you thought you married. Anyone else experience this? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Like what? You like what? Because <laughs> why, do why does this happen in general? Because we project onto one another the idealized spouse. And no, that person that you, you're married or you're with is not you, right? The thing about a relationship or the thing about people is what? They, they self-define. I know this is a simple concept, but some of y'all just had a breakthrough in your marriage. <laughs> they get to decide who they are. You don't get to project onto them. No more elbows, whoever's elbowing each other. <laughs> in a relationship, you're supposed to let that person self-define. So if I have a relationship with you, I don't say that, you know, you're this. You're this. You know, you love this. No, 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 but we do this. All right, we, we, you're supposed to listen and learn about who they are. And then you find out who they are and their preferences. And then you try to do what they like. And you find out what they like and you get into it. All right, you recognize the difference in their love languages. You try to make adjustments the best you can. God is a person. According to the Christian tradition, God's a person. According to the way of Jesus, one of the most unique things about the whole Christian story is that the God of the universe, the divine epic ground of your being actually revealed exactly what he's like in Jesus. 
That's what the scriptures say. The fullness of God therein is found in Jesus. You don't have to wonder what God's like. Look at Jesus. God's a person, not an impersonal cosmic force that you can just project your ideas onto. And so there's a huge difference, right, between Christianity, between the way of Jesus and vague spirituality. It's so different. God has preferences. And the good news is that God wants to be known. Despite all the brokenness, this God of love who created the world, and because God's a God of love, allows choice to happen, desiring desiring us to choose him, the Trinity, where there's already loving community happening, seeing the wreckage that begins to come from us constantly choosing the way of death instead of life. He's still in the wake of all of that. He's like, I want to be known. I am close. You're the one who's run off. In Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth who does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps even reach out for him and find him, though he's not far any one of us. This is good news. He's given us the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, a revelation of the fullness of Jesus. He wants to be known. And beholding him, beholding him is the way in which we grow in our awareness that God is not far off. I love this phrase. I say it all the time. It's like to be able to, to hear and see the signal through all the noise stronger and stronger and stronger learning what he loves, understanding his heart as our creator and Lord, learning God's preferences, having a right posture towards God. This is what will make us most us. Understanding who God is, worshiping him in spirit and in truth and learning to enjoy him. This is at the heart of a life centered on God. And the way we have a life centered on God is by beholding him. Beholding is what happens when we learn to simply be with him. And one of the reasons I think this can be so difficult is that our relationship with God can tend to be centralized on asking him only for things, which, by the way, is very appropriate, creature to creator. But a strange and beautiful thing happens when we decentralize asking in our prayer life. Why is it that so many of us pray like crazy in times of suffering and then forget about God and healing. What do we do then? How do we connect with God without agenda or necessity? Do we know what to do when the basis of our relationship is no longer on desperate acceptance, or Lord come down, or heal, or longing, or need? All very appropriate things, again. But what if you didn't always need to know and understand what God is doing in your life in order to trust him and admire him? What if you could grow in loving God and trusting his goodness regardless of the chaos in our broken world? That line from that psalm, better is one day in your courts. Greg said this the other day, right? Better is one day. Not just better is like being with the Lord and beholding him and getting to know him better than the worst day you had. It's better than the greatest day you can possibly conjure in your imagination. What if? What if on days when the depression and despair consume you, you're able to lie there and say to yourself, God is still God today. I'm not projecting onto him. You can lament and grieve and doubt. Like, again, I just want to keep banging this drum. Hear me. None of this is bad. But I'm pointing out why sometimes it's really hard for us 
Because when things are good, they're just sort of good. And recognizing that God is still God today and still beautiful and still wonderful and still loving, that you can sit in darkness, you can sit in hard times, knowing that your feelings in that moment and your overwhelming reality and feeling the brokenness and groaning of the world, which God says you'll have and experience, that you can still in that moment know that God is among your feelings, but that God is more than your feelings. God's among your doubt and your ache and your lament and your fear and your brokenness, but he is more than them. He's God and you're not. Strom Coleman, one more time, he says this about this very concept. It's a long quote, stay with me. Without my noticing it, I gradually changed. This is him having an experience of realizing that that God was still God. (laughs) Like a revelation of this, even in his ache. Weirdly, Though I didn't have the mind space to ask for such things as patience, kindness, gentleness, or long-suffering, I began to embody them in new ways. I softened in my interactions with my wife and my children and my friends and those others and the others in the world who had felt like unlovable strangers to me in the past. As I learned to let God be himself Without making sense of my circumstances, I wept over people who I had previously considered enemies. People I couldn't understand. I was losing all my enemies. All I could see now was God. I was changing, and my prayer life was too. As I began to feel this unity with beauty, I simultaneously felt connected in love and friendship with every other person. Like I could see God in them more clearly. Like we were all just little children, some more lost than others. Beholding God came to mean beholding the other. Learning to sit and let God be God. Learning to experience the world with this kind of tender mercy. Irrevocably transformed my life. Hear that again. Learning to sit and let God be God. Learning to experience the world with this kind of tender mystery irrevocably transformed my life. It removed the power of sickness and division and despair And hopelessness, my world wasn't free of those things, but they became peripheral issues. It was like I was falling in love with God again. There's truth here in this story that's revealed in Scripture that we've talked a whole lot about over the past year. And it's this phrase as we close. We become what we behold. 2 Corinthians 3 says, above all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory. It's like the weight and beauty of God. We are being transformed into the same image of one degree of beauty, glory, weight to another. For this comes from the Spirit who is the Lord. Paul's saying that when the veil of unbelief is removed by the Spirit, we're able to gaze upon and behold the glory of Jesus. And that when we behold Jesus, when we behold him with eyes of faith and just begin just a little bit, to get our eyes up, we are transformed and we become more like him. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it shapes everything. It shapes everything. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, he writes, they are themselves that way. 
The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. Before a church goes into eclipse, he's saying before they like kind of fall off the wagon, <laughs> there must first be a corrupting of the church's simple basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And then goes from there. You following? What is God like? And then goes from there. This is how a heresy happens. Unless you think heresy is like stuff for theologians to debate and talk about. Like heresy is like Nazi Germany is what happens when Nazism happens. Rampant disnification of love and hyper-individualism is what happens when heresy happens. When we get wrong ideas about what is most true, everything flows from it. And so, you can see, hopefully, just get a glimpse of why um, why I might, or many of the folks around you might have a desire to impart what has been a rich season of just gazing and beholding the beauty of God which is a tough thing to do because it can't really be taught. It just needs to be caught. And, and, and you hopefully can tell or begin to imagine how as we explore this over the next four months, as we look at characteristics of God, how these begin to shape who we're actually becoming. Jaku, can you throw that list on the screen really quick? <laughs> what do these things have in common? How might a view of God affect any of those things? How might a right or wrong or confused or difficult view of God affect any of these things? What the heck does ESPN Plus have to do with ambition, money, and justice, right? What about my margin? How do I view beauty? How do I view money? How do I view my time? How do I view my self-worth? How do I view my anxiety? How do I view gossip? How do I view these things? This is not a list of things, obviously, that are bad. There's nuance in all these discussions that we could have about stuff on this screen. I throw this up there just to be slightly, like, provocative, to say, can you imagine, can you get a glimpse that, oh, if my view of God, if my, if my whole life being wrapped up in the beauty of who God is and the great adventure that he's called me to seeking first the kingdom of God, this might affect the very minutia of my life as well as the grand things. And that I don't know if it's worth following Jesus without throwing yourself in with all of the zeal and joy of young Andrew, like losing his mind to a song in his bedroom. <laughs> it may sound like a funny analogy, but my gosh, guys, this is David in front of the troops stripping naked because he's just so overwhelmed. This is the passion of Christ, literally what it's been called through the centuries, of the God of the universe laying down his life. And he says, this is what it's about. This. The love of God is not a modest thing. It is not, um, it is not very mannerly. It is not buttoned up. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, there is only one way to get rid of self. 
and this is what you, and this is that you should become so absorbed in someone or something else that you have no time to think about yourself. And what he's saying is for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. The way we become more us is by getting our eyes up off and onto God. And so I want to just invite you into a little exercise here as we close. Um, yeah, you can just keep playing, Aaron, for a little bit. Can you just, if you're up for it, no pressure, just to close your eyes, or maybe it's helpful for you to actually look somewhere, to look at the stained glass. If you've been taking, like, notes on your phone or whatever, or scrolling on Instagram, just could, maybe just for a sec put it down. I want to just invite you to just bring up one moment in your life. Maybe it has nothing to do with God or spirituality at all. And just remember a moment of great passion and joy. A moment where you were like a bit unhinged <laughs> in the best possible way. <laughs> where the word like zeal might apply. A moment of overwhelming joy. It was that first time you discovered the grace of God. Maybe it was a wedding day. Clarity on your calling, whatever it is. Just hold it for a moment. Hold it for a moment. And it's abstract. I know and challenging as this might be for some of us. I know that. It's okay. Try to imagine that just being a fraction of the joy, love, peace, and goodness of one moment beholding the Lord, of being in his presence, of a life given and surrendered to God. It's not that every moment is exciting. It is that we get to enter into a life that is rooted and established, as the scriptures say, in not a vague idea of love or a modern Western idea of love, but the love that is spelled out for us in the Trinity in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A love unlike any other love. Behold the goodness of God. Behold the goodness of God. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you show us our Father? Would you show us our life source? Would you, Lord, Holy Spirit, show us the divine? Show us our home. Root us, Lord, in the ground of our being. Lord, root us in who you are and what you've done. To have, to have belief in this moment. The God might just awaken us just a little bit more. Awaken our passion and our zeal to consider some other things just less important than loving and knowing him. To behold perfect joy and to behold perfect love and to behold perfect forgiveness and to behold perfect grace. How could we not become these things? If 
Fill us, Lord, with a passion for you. Give us a revelation of your worth. Give us a revelation, Lord, of your worth, I pray. Only you can do that, God. I pray, Lord, for both the person who's been just wrestling with doubt and skepticism and is just battling, like, the difference between what's going on in their heart and their head. And I, and I also lift up those that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking of my parents even being here. I'm just like, gosh, like, just awaken again. Lord, I, I pray that you keep lifting my eyes up more and more. Or that when I hit 50 and when I hit 60 and when I hit 70 and when I hit 80, God willing, any of those years, Lord, that I would just you, just, you would be so faithful. I know you are to keep lifting my head up. That I would not get distracted and let my attention wane. That I would be so earthly good that my eyes would be set on you. That outwardly, though I'm wasting away, inwardly I would be being made new and more fresh and more alive and more awake. So we get our eyes up onto you, Lord. Amen. Traditionally, this is a moment when we come to take communion where a, a priest might hold up the bread and the word would be, you can guess, behold, behold. I'll welcome up the communion servers as we close. Behold, this is a word, a word that moves us to adoration. And so as we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, as we remember Christ's body broken for us, the greatest, most beautiful act of love the world has ever seen, we are in some way, as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, beholding, literally with more of our senses than just our mind, than just our eyes, but we've even with tasting the goodness of God, we are beholding and adoring the forgiveness of sins, the life of the ages, the firm foundation. Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup? Holy Spirit, as we just like wait in line for those of us coming forward, how would you move us to worship? Lord, would you... Um, would you shift, Lord, in our hearts? Would you like shift us away, Lord, from just the apathy and despondency and lack of attention that encroaches again and again. Or do whatever you want to do in this time. Amen. Come up the center aisle if you'd like. If you're here, you're follower of Jesus, you're part of the family, you'd like to participate with us. If you'd like to still come forward and you don't want to take communion, just cross your arms like this, and one of our servers will bless you. There are people serving in the back as well, so right where um, Adam is standing um, in just a moment, um, everybody on this side of Adam will, be, will head back that way, uh, and everybody on this side will come this way, and then in the balcony, someone will come up um, to serve those in the balcony. And it gets a little messy and a little bit crazy, and we only have a few minutes left of service here. But I want to invite you to come, and if you just need to receive prayer, if you want to spend a moment, Maybe even where you are before you come up. 
or you're just like, I need to be shaken, shaken out of my malaise, and just someone to bless you and pray for you. There are folks who would love to pray for you who are over here, and will be over here, and I want to invite you to just linger, even if it stops things up again. Let us, like, as we lean into taking communion, let this not be rote ritual. May we have a passion to behold the beauty of the cross in this moment. So let's stand together. Or if you need to kneel and find a corner, do that too. But for the rest of us, let's stand and let us come and take of the bread and the cup and partake of his love.